We are going to uh, be looking at John 19 this morning together. And as I say, the story has uh, started to move on from the trial uh, and the beatings that Jesus has received. And we are going to encounter the pivotal moment of all history this morning together. A reminder that this book of John, that he wrote for the Jews, the early Jews, he wrote it to make it clear to them that he's written these things that they may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, they may have life in his name. And that's what we're still about this morning. So John continues in his telling of events with that aim in mind, with that mission uh, in his thoughts, that their eyes might be opened to what is true, that they might believe that this is true. Jesus is the Messiah, that he wasn't a blasphemer, as they had accused him of, that he was, in fact, God himself. John wants them to know this foundation of belief so that they might accept that truth and base their whole lives on it. And not just on a bunch of facts. He wants them to base their lives on a relationship with this Jesus Christ himself, who died as this passage will start for the ones that he has come to save. He's chosen many to receive life in his name. And John wants them to, as I say, to enter into this relationship. So let's read the passage. Glasses. We're going to be starting in John 19 at uh, verse 16b. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. <laughs> so they thought. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the law protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross, Jesus stood, sorry, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head 
and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And the other scripture says, sorry, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So what I want to do is touch on each part of this crucifixion story that John asks them to consider when writing this gospel. There's the sign, there's the clothes, there's the care, the finish, the piercing, and the burial. And as we consider Jesus and the responses of various characters in the narrative, we can consider, do we believe? And am I experiencing life in his name? Or we could maybe use a slightly more specific question. We could ask ourselves, what does the cross mean for us? I feel I need to give a bit of a, a warning up front. Um, as one poetic commentator put it, all of eternity will be needed to answer that. For Christ's love unto death is the wonder of the ages, the theme of heaven's adoring millions, the supreme mystery committed to the church on earth. Combined with Dan's affirmation last Sunday night that it takes as long as it takes, either means that this preach is never going to finish. Or perhaps when I pause there'll still be more riches to fathom from John 19, from the Gospels and from the Word of God. So let me at least try and scratch the surface. So how does John help us believe and know life in God's name? Uh, well, we must remember that John is writing to the Jews who had, had long been awaiting a Messiah. Um, they'd been hearing for centuries that a Saviour was coming. They're living in the, the shadow of the Roman Empire. Their awareness that they need a rescuer was their lived experience. John isn't trying to convince them that they need a saviour. They already know that. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. What about us? I can imagine that, that most of 
the current world population aren't quite in that same place. Uh, maybe they aren't specifically looking for an expected saviour, but they are looking for something. I could venture that they're mostly not thinking, I have it all. I understand everything. I have solved life. I can supply all my needs. I don't need anyone else. My life is perfect. And it's all down to me. Maybe one or two of them talk a bit like that. Maybe you know them. But I think when we're honest with ourselves, most folk more seem to come from the, uh, the angle of being a bit uncertain, maybe a little bit confused, possibly a bit fragile, maybe hurt, and a bit broken. Knowing they're makers of mistakes, prone to falling short, even of uh, their own low standards. I might use the language of we as well. We've told lies, we've been unkind, we've got angry, we've shown prejudice. Perhaps we do need some help. I saw an interview with an astrophysicist this week talking about some fresh mapping of movement of the stars over time. She was trying to communicate some enthusiasm for this uh, subject. Uh, and she, she went to her reason for wanting to understand more about how the universe works. Uh, was This was because, well, she says, we all want to know where we came from and what we're doing here. It's a great point. And as all creation will point back to its creator, I'm sure that, that there's a possibility that that might help on her journey. And we are all invited to understand that he created us and he wants to reveal to us who he has made us to be. The Jews are wary. They're so conditioned to being part of their sort of Jewish enclave within the Roman world that they've become more focused on not being seen to contradict the Roman authorities and keeping their eyes on God and looking to him as their highest authority. There's definite compromise in there, isn't there? We've been seeing it all the way in the build-up to this moment. Meanwhile, God's there, working out his plan to send them a saviour that he knows that they need. Their eyes, distracted, become attuned to the culture around them rather than to God's word. Wonderfully, God, the same God's still working today. Those he's chosen will believe in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and they will have life in his name. It's uh, this crucifixion. So John kind of starts with this summary here. So the, 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 the carrying the cross, goes this girl, crucified, one either side, she's in the middle. Uh, quite a, quite a, a, a very much an executive summary there, I feel. Um, it doesn't seem to include a lot of what the other gospel writers include in the, the, the description uh, of the whole story. Um, I, I deduce that he's focusing maybe on the bits that he personally witnessed, but he's thinking about his writers, so, sorry, his readers, so he's, he's writing with those bits that he thinks will stir faith in them. So maybe there's a bit of hope there that they'll stir faith in us today. He starts with the sign. So Pilate orders this sign, this sign that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. 
kind of identifying Jesus and his so-called crime. There's some politics and power playing going on, we can see here, between the chief priests and Pilate. The chief priests don't want that title. They don't want that to stick. They want to go back to the charge that they had of blasphemy. I reckon Pilate was winding them up a bit, really, wasn't he? He's already said in the previous conversation with them, shall I crucify your king? Which obviously draws this just, just desperate response, doesn't it? They say they've got no king but Caesar. Just speaks to how lost they are as a people at this moment, how in need they are of a saviour. They, they bowed the knee to the one they think holds power and authority. Compromise with culture. Maybe their motives are good. They don't want to upset people. They don't want to offend people that are around them. You know, maybe they just don't like the discomfort that there is in conflict. Maybe they just want to be lovely. Maybe they just want to avoid persecution. Whatever their motive, I can't be entirely sure, but whatever their motive, it's certainly, I'm certain it wasn't faith. Amazingly, in this moment, Pilate, without even understanding, he, he, he rightly declares that Jesus has come to claim the crown. Jesus is king. We've been singing about it all morning, haven't we? Jesus is king. The sign is firstly in Aramaic, so the Jews could read it. They could uh, recognize that language, um, and they would recognize that in seeing that, yeah, maybe this is why the chief priests were complaining about it. They're, they're seeing this sign, Jesus is king, written in their own language for them. And intriguingly, we see that the sign is also written in Latin and Greek. The commentator, Bruce Milne, points out that Latin was the primary language of law, of government, and business. And Greek was the language of the arts, and of culture, and of philosophy, and thought. And he suggests that through this sign, at this time of Jesus' death, Jesus is announcing his claim to all of it as his own. He's declaring himself king of all. I found that really helpful as I did Clara's prayer this morning. He's an everlasting king, and he is king of all. She said a lot more than that. It was a lot better than that. That's a, a very poor summary. But uh, nevertheless, this already coming out in our worship of this everlasting king, this king of everything. And today, as the Bible's translated into more and more languages, and it's spread physically, spread electronically, as populations migrate and merge and overlap, as the gospel continues to spread, as we sing our multi-language songs, we, we continue to proclaim that he is king of every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is king. Jesu Heirei. Jesu Halal Malik. I gave it a go. The key to the purpose of God here, Pilate and the chief priests don't look like those chosen to be included in his salvation. They've got a ringside seat, the parents say in proceedings. They appear to have power and authority, and yet they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're missing out. 
Whereas those of us that do have life in his name, that acknowledge that he is king of all, can not only expect great provision and strengthening and wisdom to come to us, we can also expect to live in disagreement with the ungodly culture that surrounds us. The enemy continues to inspire a culture within the world that disagrees with God. We're looking to a different ruler. We're subject to God's authority. We're slaves to righteousness. We're going to continue, as all believers have through all the ages, to be swamped with any number of enemy attempts at deception in order to attempt to drag us off course. A couple of current ones that we face. The enemy's attack on marriage, trying to get even the church to cross the line to culture and redefine it beyond God's design of one man and one woman. Or to devalue life to such a point that the enemy convinces even Christians to waver on whether it's okay to end the life of another human, as if that human being inside a womb makes it not a death or somehow less of a death. Jesus points out in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God designed the womb as a place of protection, a place of 24-7 nurture, right from conception. It's a place for his most vulnerable children to be safe. Each of us spent time there, remember. Therefore, we can agree with David on this one. As he put it in Psalm 22, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. This sign on the cross declares Jesus is king and he gives life in his name. John moves on to the clothes. Four more men with ringside seats are the guards. Their focus is on their bonus, a few material possessions stolen from a dying man. They probably did this at every crucifixion that they supervised, oblivious to the fact that God knew that they would do this, and hundreds of years before revealed it in his word. Again, in Psalm 22, it says this, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. They did both of these in that moment, could have been such a light bulb moment for them if they'd been conscious of it at the time. But I can imagine for, for, for those that John is now writing to, those that are, are reading this, are, are seeing it and saying, ah, oh, yes, of course, it all connects up. Maybe you've had light bulb moments like that where truths have dropped into your heart. You've seen things, you've realized things. You said, yes, of course, that's true. Our notes, like Pilate and the Jewish leaders, possibly the, the soldiers are blind to the fact that they are part of the fulfillment of Scripture. They don't even realize what's going on, which provides a great contrast for the next section, which is uh, the, the, the women that are at the cross. There's four of them that are mentioned. They're mostly called Mary. 
And just as we've seen the four soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes, their eyes are on Jesus. Their focus is clearly on him. They've known him. They've been around him. They've known his love in all sorts of ways. His mum, she's known his love as a son. Between them, they'll have known his acceptance, his forgiveness, his healing, his teaching. They already believe that he's the Messiah. They're already his disciples. They're not hiding. They're already knowing life in his name. They're surely included in those that he gives eternal life to. I guess it's not surprising that John then includes this next bit, which is Jesus talking to him and to his mum very personally in this most intense of moments. Now, not many, I don't think, would disagree that, 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 uh, that this was Jesus taking responsibility as a son by, by kind of passing on that responsibility for future provision and care for his mother as she aged knowing that he wouldn't be around to do that himself. That's good in itself. We could be encouraged to think about how we help care for our parents in different ways. But I want to suggest that there's two other helpful things to us, for us to glean from this. Firstly, that Jesus is saying that this isn't the end of everything. Shortly, he's going to be saying, it is finished. And they'll be wondering exactly what that means. But in the meantime, he's implying that after he's died, life will continue for Mary and it will continue for John for some time. It's his time, but it's not everyone's. I kind of figure this must have been really helpfully orientating, both for Mary and for John. As those about to face the physical loss of a son and of a best friend. There's this message from God, Jesus saying, you're going to keep going. It reminds us that he's marked out our times. And just as we're not responsible for our own conception, we're not asked to determine the time of our own death. Those events are to remain in God's trusted hands. One thing God taught me through my experience of loss was that while he still gives me breath, I am supposed to, to continue to live with belief, with faith, with hope. If Jesus is saying to Mary and to John that they're to continue with life after someone so integral to their life so far has left them, that it must not only be possible, but it must be right to do so. Yes, they'll be grieving. Yes, there will be pain. But there is permission for healing and for a new season of life too. He's pointing beyond the cross. Secondly, and this one might require a little bit more imagining, but we could see this as representing a new green shoot or perhaps prophetic example of the emerging church under the new covenant. A new family being formed around Jesus' blood rather than around human bloodlines. Jesus did have some half-brothers, but he entrusted Mary to John. 
There's this greater emphasis starting on church family than natural family. And this is built on through the New Testament. And even Andy's uh, encouragement this morning to look to our Heavenly Father more than to our earthly father, to know a perfect Heavenly Father. Now, most of us know to some extent what a challenge it is to work out family, uh, whether that's natural family or church family. Um, and, and some of you will know what, what it means for church, being involved in church family, to maybe bump up against uh, the calls we get from natural family. A range of challenges even. So, I'm going to have a bit of fun now. Uh, I don't know whether you will, but I'm going to. Um, we, <laughs> it, uh, this, is, this is me. I like, to, I like sometimes to ask questions that are maybe on a little bit of the extremes um, to help me think something through. So we could ask ourselves questions like, do we actually have to like everybody? We could ask, do we have to come to every gathering or can we just rock up if we happen to be free and in the mood? Do we never go away for a weekend to visit a parent or sibling so that we don't miss a single meeting? Or do we respond to every family invite, every half-birthday party invitation, every great-nephew's first sneeze celebration? But, you know, if we're free, we might rock up. Do we have... 15 people round for dinner every night from church? Or do we screen our calls just in case someone wants to meet up with us for a coffee that might ask us how we are and may even want to pray for us? <laughs> nope. Just helps me think these things through. Make sure I'm not too close to the extremes. Maybe helps me find the radical middle, the path somewhere there where we can be full of faith, where we can find grace, where we can discover joy and fruitfulness in our daily lives, in our work, in our decisions, in our growing together as a body, as well as reaching out to those who don't yet believe. So many things to juggle, but there's grace and there's faith to be found, to be discovered as we face these choices. And I'm certainly not giving you any rules. You've been given the spirit to help us with that. Just remember, the goal isn't burnout and the goal isn't isolation. It's growing together as family. And it can be a bit messy, but it will certainly involve being present physically, spiritually, emotionally at times as we grow in fellowship together with each other. Anyway, back to the text. We've got one example here. John took Mary into his home. They're coming on to the finish now, but that's only four of six. Not to confuse you. They're coming on to the finish on the cross. Jesus' physical death, that moment. Now, it's quite easy, I found, to read this passage and think that Pilate or the chief priests or the soldiers or the crowd responsible for killing Jesus. It looks like his life has been taken away from him. 
And they're probably all thinking that they have done that. But the text says that first he told those there that it was finished. And then he chose to bow his head. And then he chose to give up his spirit. He's doing all this at his choice. Willing obedience. Full humility. Knowing his father loves him. He'd given the disciples the heads up about this in John 10. They knew that, that this was the case. He says, in John 10, he says, The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. Only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. And in Matthew 28, the risen Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Intriguingly, there's this convergence in what the Romans and the Jews and Jesus all want. They all want Jesus' death. But their motives are all so, so different. The Romans, the Jewish leaders, self-interest, preservation of power. Jesus, on the other hand, voluntarily uses his power on behalf of his chosen ones. He becomes the sacrificial lamb for all sin and the means of salvation for all who he calls. John goes on to tell us something that doesn't happen next. And then something else that does. And this connects his readers. The new covenant that is being enacted in this moment with God's covenant with Moses. He first he reports that none of Jesus' bones were broken, even though the bones of the other two being crucified were. This was a, a way of ensuring death take away the last option for avoiding asphyxiation by removing the ability to support the body by pushing up through the legs against the nails. Jesus must have chosen not to do that. Another sign that he wasn't clinging to life. He was laying it down. This connects back to the, uh, to, to the, to the Mosaic law with in Exodus and Numbers, we can see the Passover regulations. You can read, read through them all. There's, there's lots of them. There's some great detail in there. One of them is very clear. Do not break any of the bones of the lamb that was to be sacrificed. And John calls this out as a fulfillment of those scriptures too. Keely, Keely positioning Jesus as the final sacrificial lamb. And John says this also fulfills other scripture. And he's referring there to Zechariah. In chapter 12, where he prophesies that the Lord says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. And again, Isaiah in chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. We're looking at the spear here, being thrust into Jesus' side, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, 
This is apparently, I'm no medic, but this is apparently an explainable physical effect at this point, just after death. But John isn't excited that this is a natural process. He's excited to realize that God also revealed this scripture hundreds of years before. And here he's connecting the readers to their history and their heritage and their reference point of escape from slavery in Egypt, the first Passover, and then crossing the Red Sea, where the following mighty Egyptian army all drown, saved by blood, and then by water. A few days before, Jesus has been sat with his disciples, celebrating the Passover, celebrating, remembering this coming out of slavery that their ancestors experienced. In that moment, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Days later, we see it enacted, his blood literally flowing. So the blood and the water represent for us this baptism, this repentance. Hence Jesus' instruction for us to repent and be baptised and to go into the world and replicate this. And that's what's been happening continuously through the ages. And it's what we still do today. This is still for us today. In a minute, we're going to do that. We're going to come and drink the wine that represents his blood shed on the cross as described right here in John 19, a shear, a spear shoved into his side to show that he was dead, so that we can know his forgiveness. The rest of Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought, peace on, brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And in a few weeks... The pool here will be open for believers to step into and be baptised in water as well. The blood and the water continuing to represent salvation. They're physical acts, drinking the wine, being immersed in water that we partake in, just as Jesus physically had his side pierced and blood and water flowed. Taken down from the cross, uh, Jesus is placed in the tomb. Joseph and Nicodemus, the key to that, they're members of the Jewish ruling council. These guys had wealth, they had position. They had come, or, or perhaps were coming, to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But they still kind of had a foot in both camps. They seem to be hedging their bets a little bit still. We can imagine that they would have felt a lot of conflict. If they'd come right out and said, I'm, we're with Jesus, they probably would have uh, lost their jobs, their income, their position in society, maybe their families and, and friends too. Perhaps you, you identify with that. You, you know what it's like. It's like to feel that tension. Maybe at school, 
wherever you spend your days. Maybe you've, you've experienced times of trying to live life with a foot in each camp. Now, we could be quick to criticize them. Maybe take the attention off ourselves a little bit. Criticize these guys instead. Let's throw the first stone. But in God's grace, it means that these guys had the access to Pilate so that they could get the body. They had the access to the resources to get the spices for the burial. It meant that Jesus' body could be safely put in that tomb. And by God's grace, it gave them an opportunity to come out of that place of a foot in two camps and to say, I'm going to handle his body. I'm right here with Jesus. There's a time. There's a time for us to get our foot out of two camps and to side with Jesus. There's a time for us to do that. Maybe the time for you is this morning. Maybe it's time for you to stop living with the discomfort of having a foot in each camp. I want to go back to where we started and our question, what does the cross mean for you today? What is your response today? As we spent just these few minutes at the foot of the cross this morning, I'm sure, I'm convinced it's not possible to go away and just be unaffected. However many times you've heard it before. What have we seen? We've seen Jesus claim that he is king of all. We've seen that he's the head of his body, the church, and that his people are to look to him. We've seen him die, that you, you might have life in his name. So in what way do you need to look to him this morning? Perhaps in this moment, feelings of shame are present with you. Perhaps in this moment, guilt is surfacing. I don't want us to be afraid of those. They might just be the means of grace that God uses to bring you to him this morning. God does that. He's gracious. He puts his finger on things in our life that he wants to exchange for wholeness. And he does that by the way of the cross. 1 John 1 verse 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 